Welcome to the 321 Biz Development Podcast and the White Collar uh, Sales Pro Show on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Clarence Rick Napier, CEO of 321 Biz Dev LLC, located in Sacramento County, California. Today is Thursday, March 26, 2020. 321 Biz Dev LLC brings a combination of sales system training, business development, digital marketing, and website design to worldwide business owners of any size. Our business is people, our product is sales performance. We tell business owners exactly what they need to know and why they need to know it without any gimmicks or fluff. We know what the sales performance struggle is like because we were once there too. The 321 team can help business owners meet or exceed their revenue expectations. 321 is the company to call if you or your sales team want to master the following four main sales functions. Contacting, prospecting, appointment setting, and closing. 321 BizDev services are available worldwide where the English language is spoken. We can be reached toll-free in the U.S. and Canada at 833-321-3212 or internationally using WhatsApp at country code 1-415-515-6760. We have over 93 hours of business development content and interviews with business owners from around the world. Today's podcast episode is titled Basic Economics Crash Course. Now listeners, this will probably be the longest podcast that I've ever done. I prepared some notes that I, that I wrote just so that I can stay on track. So if you hear me flipping some pages, it's not because I'm, I'm reading something from some website. Um, and some of the information I'm going to provide will come from uh, some websites uh, that provide some historical context. And I will tell you what websites those are. And I will give you the, the author. I will give you the, like, for instance, what website it came from and some dates. But for the most part, I wanted to at least have a set of notes where I can stay on track. Now, I did this uh, podcast today, you know, primarily because, I mean, America and the rest of the world took a big hit from this COVID, COVID-19 thing. And I'm going to try my best not to edit anything from this podcast episode because it would normally, it would take me hours. Normally, when I do a 60-minute podcast episode, I would probably spend about, I would say about an hour editing some things, some, some, some gaffes I made. But I'm going to not edit this uh, podcast episode because it would take me way, way too long. So if you hear me make some gaffes, I'll just, you know, keep moving. I'll correct the gaff and I'll keep moving. But I wanted to do this podcast episode today uh, primarily because I've always wanted to talk about the subject of economics. When I was in college and studying for a business management degree, I also took a lot of economics classes because it caught my attention. You know, economics classes, when when I took those back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was uh, still working in corporate America and getting out of the, uh, the reserves, the military reserves, it caught my attention because there were some things that were explained that I could never figure out why people made decisions like they made. You know, I could not 
uh, figure out why a company would make a decision to do this. I could not uh, determine how even an individual came up with the logic to make their their decision. And sometimes companies that make their, their decisions don't use economics. And it shows when those decisions fail. And I also saw people who made decisions or they had a thought process. And uh, a lot of times they didn't use economics or some type of philosophy, you know, structured philosophy in making their decisions. So often they had a bad outcome with, with their decisions. And, you know, I always said to myself, you know, how did a person make that decision? Or how did a company make that decision? Or with this thing with the COVID-19 thing, how did they make that decision to do what they're doing that has pretty much temporarily destroyed the world economy in some places? Now, I'm, I'm an American citizen. And uh, so if I talk about something, it's from my American citizen status. Now, you may not agree with everything that I'm, that I'm about to say, and that is perfectly fine with, with me. Because if you live in South Korea, if you live in Colombia, if you live in Dubai, you may say, I don't agree with that. And that's perfectly fine because from your perspective, what I'm saying may, may not be totally accurate that fits your construct of how you were raised. Now, if you happen to live in uh, Brazil, you know, and, and, and I'm talking about something regarding economics, you may say, how could that be true? Well, that's because maybe in Brazil, things are not like they are in the USA. And there are probably some things in Brazil that I will say I like better than what, what's happening in the United States of America. So I just wanted to, to throw that in. But this COVID-19 thing, in my opinion, was a total fraud. And uh, I'm not going to try to prove that here on this podcast episode. I think within the next two or three weeks, uh, based on what I'm hearing, people may have a different decision or they may have a different uh, thought process about COVID-19, coronavirus, and how it started and, and the damage that it, that, it, that it has done to a lot of world economies. But I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. I want to give you my background, at least from my, my cultural uh, uh, background. Okay, so I love the people of the world. You know, I've been to about 30 countries between either uh, traveling to those countries for fun or work, um, stopping at the airports for a couple of days, you know, traveling. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, I used to have a job that took me to a lot of countries, like I said, traveling or work. So I've seen a, a lot of cultures. And when I go to a country, I always respect that country's uh, customs and cultures and laws. So I would be the best uh, uh, guest in your country. So if I, if I came to your country, I would get off the plane. I would know what not to do, I would know what is acceptable in your country and I would follow those laws. So if you said, you know, Rick, you're in uh, 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 Venezuela and you need to, before you get off the plane, you need to hop on one foot five times and and uh, turn around the, on the ground, roll around the ground for a couple of minutes before you can come into our country. I would do that because that is the country's laws 
and that's the uh, country's uh, expectations of guests. So, and uh, when people come to, to the United States, 99 times out of 100, people obey the laws of the United States. So I just want to let people know that. Um, my background culturally and, and, and ethically, you might be surprised, but my great-grandfather was German. Okay, so my great-grandfather was German, probably born around like 1850, 1848, right before the Emancipation Proclamation that happened in the United States that freed the slaves. Uh, his daughter, which was my great-grandmother, who I knew until she died when I was seven years old, uh, she was a daughter of, of the German and, and his wife, or, or not even wife, his, uh, the person that had my granddaughter, the woman that had my, my great-grandmother, uh, she was probably a slave because uh, my great-grandmother was born in uh, 1998. I'm sorry, 1898. See, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna erase this. She was born in 1898 and uh, she was the daughter of a German guy and most likely a slave woman. Now, my great-grandmother, whose name was Gertrude, she had four daughters from a Cuban guy in, in Florida. So Gertrude had four daughters, and one of those daughters was my grandmother, Juanita. And uh, so my father's side of the family is from Haiti, you know, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. Haiti has been uh, decimated by... Uh, crooked politicians, crooked presidents. They stole the money from 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 the, the Haitian nation. Other countries have come into Haiti and 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 just raped the country of its minerals, of its diamonds, of its coal, of its uh, oil, of its uh, other natural resources. So I have a very uh, strong uh, multicultural background. Like I mentioned, my great-grandmother was almost white-looking. She just had curly hair. And again, I knew her until she died when I was like seven and a half years old in, in Tampa, Florida. So I want to get into uh, talking about, uh, you know, this basic economics course, this crash course that I want to give people. And for economics, there are really like three main economic models. And the economics models are communism, socialism, and capitalism. And uh, so I'm going to start with uh, communism. But let me just say also, when you hear the word economics, please do not just think financial. Because in the study of economics, and I took five courses, I only needed one, but I took five courses, four extra courses in economics to really get a good a grip or grasp of what economics is. So economics is more than just financial. Economics is financial. It's emotional component. It has a psychological component and it also has a political component, unfortunately. So let's start with communism. Okay, so communism uh, had its, uh, its birth uh, in 1848. And its founders were two guys, uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. They were both German dudes. 
And what their uh, thing was is to, you know, show the differences uh, between uh, people that they did not like. They did not like the bourgeois class. And the bourgeois class, or you might have heard the word bourgeoisie, uh, the owners of, of companies. They didn't like uh, the, the owners of, of companies. They didn't like the fact that people were able to make a profit. And uh, they did not like the proletarians. And if you want to know what a proletarian is, think of someone who has a, a pretty good job. You know, they have a good job and they can determine how much they make. And even back in, uh, you know, in Germany and, and in Russia, you know, things were not what were not too bad. They were just like any place else. You had certain uh, jobs and, um, you know, they, they paid what they paid or they were bartered. But these two guys, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, they didn't like the bourgeoisie class, nor did they like the proletariats, the, 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 those two people, because those two people or those two groups, the bourgeois and the proletariats, they were into they were materialistic and uh, Engels and Karl Marx didn't like that. And what they desired was something called a utopian construct, this perfect uh, uh, world where everybody had everything they wanted and nobody lacked anything in other words they kind of wanted everything to be perfect but here's the deal they wanted to control it and and communism has this phrase that i want to read to you and the phrase and i want you to remember this phrase because this phrase is being mentioned today in in u.s politics and even in other countries they use this phrase in a different way but i'm gonna read this phrase to you because when I when I heard this phrase, when I first heard it, like in, you know, 1988, you know, 1990, I didn't think much, much of it when I first heard it. But then when I started studying the phrase and looking at each like, you know, phrase, comma, then the rest of the phrase, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, this phrase is not a good phrase. So I'm going to read this phrase to you from each according to his ability to each according to his needs okay so i'm gonna say it again from each according to his ability to each according to his needs so what that means because it look it, it sounds pretty um innocent the phrase sounds kind of innocent when you, when you first hear it and you read it but, but what the phrase is saying whatever you whatever you whatever you do for your job you get the same thing as everybody else so what that kind of means is if you have the least amount of education, you put the least amount of effort into what you do in society for work, uh, your contribution to society, you will get the same damn thing as someone who puts the most effort into what they do. OK, uh, if they, so you, you take a person that has, like I said, the least amount of skills you know, let him or her do his thing for eight hours a day. And then you put a person that said, I'm trying to maximize every opportunity that I can in this life. And for Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in their quest for this utopia, each person, the person who did the least with the least education and matched with the person who's, who, who's done the most with the most education, they would get the same thing see and that's what they were after 
And that's what they actually did. You know, uh, you know, like I said, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, two German guys, they eventually wrote something called the Communist Manifesto. And uh, a lot of people who believe in communism and uh, it's, it's twin uh, half-sister socialism, they use uh, pieces of the Communist Manifesto to justify why everybody in the world should have uh, should live this certain way where everything is equal. So what happened was, let's fast forward to like the early 1900s, uh, like in Russia. So there was this group called the Bolsheviks and uh, that's spelled B-O-L-S-H-E-V-I-K-S. And they were a far left Marxist faction. So they believed in the Karl Marx way of, of doing things, doing things. And uh, the Bolsheviks were founded by Vladimir Lenin and this guy named Alexander Bogdanov, B-O-G-D-A-N-O-V, okay? Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Bogdanov. And the Bolsheviks, they split from this, from this group called the Socialist Democratic Party, Labor Party, 1898. So the Bolsheviks started in 1898 and they were, you know, growing their movement in the early 1900s. So the Bolsheviks become, became known as the Reds, uh, you know, Reds, R-E-D-S. And they came to power. They actually claimed power in October in 19, 1917. And they founded something called the Russian Soviet Federation Socialist Republic, which was soon known as the USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republic because uh, Vladimir Lenin did not like the democrat process he didn't like that for the most part every person had a vote to determine what the outcome would, would be because he didn't like the fact that people could uh, make their own decisions so as the Bolsheviks began to gain more influence um, they, they, they began to rob the people they had a lot of bloody murders. I mean, they were a party of intimidation. Um, they took down the government that existed before the Bolsheviks uh, came into power. So on July 4th, 1917, they opened fire on the people with machine guns in Petrograd, which is now known as St. Petersburg, Russia. And that began the Bolshevik Revolution, and which was funded by Germany. <laughs> See, so when you hear the word, you know, Nazi, you know, so what was started by uh, Karl Marx and, and Friedrich Engels, Germans, they were socialists in Germany and they funded the Bolshevik Revolution. So October 24th, 1917, there was a speech and what the Bolsheviks promised people that land was now going to be equally distributed to the people because they didn't like the fact that if one guy had like 10 acres and he was farming on it and uh, he was, you know, had cattle on it or if he had certain crops that he was growing on it, um, Lenin, he saw that as a, as, a, as, a, as a power that a person should not have all by himself. So the Bolsheviks won, again, October 24th, 1917, by promising peace land and bread and peace was defined no wars no wars with anybody you know close society there uh, land 
Nobody would own private land. So just imagine that for a second. If you owned land, all of a sudden the Bolsheviks came into power October 24th, 1917, and you no longer owned land. And then the last one was bread. Nobody's ever going to run out of food, which really turned out to be a big lie because I, I did get a chance to go into East Germany in 1983 through Checkpoint, Char Checkpoint Charlie, through East Berlin, and there were food lines. And then five years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. I saw the food lines in East Germany, East Berlin, because for those who may not know, Germany used to be two countries. There was East Germany to the, to the east, and there was West Germany. And at the border, there was a West Berlin, and that was the free side. And then there was, the, was East Berlin, and that was the communist side, the, the sort of the Russian, uh, the Soviet side, they called it. So Lenin persuaded people through lies that the Bolsheviks would satisfy people's demands. He said, we would take care of everything. Now, one of the things that the Bolsheviks did, they said, we're going to give you some land. Everybody's going to have some land. And then in 1921, they took it all back because they figured out that um, even with people owning property, people had a sense of pride when they owned something. And the Bolsheviks did not like people to have uh, any sense of pride of ownership. So why did communism fail? Like I said, communism failed. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan, they were fighting this thing called the, um, uh, it was like a Cold War, they called it. And what the Cold War was all about, and I knew this because I was in the military at this time, what the Cold War was is who could stockpile enough weapons to fight the other guy uh, in the event that the Soviet Union and the United States uh, went to war. Now, the Soviet Union tried to uh, you know, set up shop, so to speak, outside of Russia. The closest they got was Cuba in 19, I think it was 1961, 1962, when they had the the Bay of Pigs invasion. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was, if I was born, it was just barely, not yet, 1962, I was probably like a couple of months old. But President John F. Kennedy, you know, had a pretty powerful uh, stance against that and nothing happened. So the Soviet Union was trying to establish these bases around the world to spread the, the, the communist movement. So they were able to convert a free Cuba to convert that country into a communist country. And today, Cuba is still a communist country. And Cuba became a communist country in 1959. So what is that? 61 years Cuba has been a communist country. So why did communism fail? Uh, like I said, 1917 to 1991, 74 years, uh, three generations and some change of poverty, pain and misery for people uh, in the Soviet uh, Union. And now the Soviet Union was not just Russia. The Soviet Union was half of Germany, Hungary, Poland, Romania, uh, Czech, Czechoslovakia, which became the Czech Republic and Slovak. It was uh, a lot of these countries that like Southern, Southern Russia, uh, like Ukraine, uh, what else? Um, all the way up 
before you got to like Finland, Sweden. So all those countries right before you got to uh, Finland, Sweden and Norway, all those countries up to that northern uh, northern European border were part of the Soviet Union. Bulgaria is another country. And so when the Soviet Union crumbled and they crumbled because they could not feed their people when the Soviet Union fell. And you may recall this this phrase, tear down this wall. That was a, a phrase used by uh, President Ronald Reagan. And that's when uh, the two Germanys were unified. And that's the reason why we have two, one Germany now instead of two. But um, what, some of the reasons they, they well, here, I got 10 reasons why communism failed. Number one, creativity was not a priority in communism. You couldn't be creative. You had to do exactly what the government told you. You know, if you wanted to be uh, an artist, nope, you couldn't do that because the government needed you to ride a, 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 tra- a, tra- a tractor and plow the fields because you were working for the Soviet Union. It's collective, collective, uh, what is it? Collectivation. Yeah, collectivation. There you go. So from 1928 to 1940, under Joseph Stalin, so after Lenin died, Joseph Stalin, S T A L I N. He became the, 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 the Soviet leader and the government owned the farms and tried to distribute the food to all the Soviet or the Russian, uh, you know, residents and citizens. And uh, again, the Soviet Union was not just Russia. It was all those countries. I think it was like like either 13 or 19 countries in what they called the Soviet bloc. And. So the, the land that they took from the farmers after they promised to give it to them, the farmers knew that, that it would not work because there was no incentive for hard work except getting food. So that's why, you know, when you think about uh, incentive, if you have a job today, you have an incentive of going to work because when you get your money, you get to do what you want to do with it. And if you want more money, then you just make your time more valuable. But that was not allowed in the Soviet Union. Number three, lack of rights. Uh, Again, collective mindset. So I just want to tell people this today. In today's society here in the United States of America, if if you hear these words, collective, community, together, we can do this together. We, if we all participate, those are communist, socialist phrases to, to get people um, into <laughs> being a community, which means which, which goes back to the original saying, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. We will never fail as long as we work together. What well, didn't work for the Soviets? It didn't work. Um, so because because an individual did not have rights, there were no individual rights because everyone was considered to be part of the collective, to be, to be a part of the community. Number four, adaptation. Uh, communism did not react well to outside stimulus. In other words, there was no global uh, outlook for, in other words, Soviet Union did not participate with uh, Brazil that much. You know, they didn't participate at all with the United States. They didn't participate with India that much. They were a closed society. And when you have a closed society like that, you miss out on, on, on different things. 
Uh, number five, which sort of ties into number four, lack of innovation. No incentive to improve the methods to, to make things better. Uh, and, and you can see that in Cuba. If you ever go to Cuba, you can see it's old cars, it's old parts, it's old buildings because there is no incentive uh, to innovate. Uh, communists just believe in just work. You know, don't, don't try to work smart, just work hard. Uh, we're not going to try to innovate because we don't have the money. And if we innovate, some little smart ass may say, hey, you know what? I can do better than my fellow man. So that's not allowed in communism. Wasn't allowed in communism. Number six, poor economic calculation. Communism does not have a market-driven economy. No innovation means it's, it's, it's difficult to make decisions. Um, they didn't have something that says, okay, well, because check this out. There is no profit involved. Uh, you know, if you want, if you want something done in the communist system and you're the, like the citizen, there's no benefit for you. You know, if you got, if you have kids, if you are allowed to have kids, almost like China, I think China now you can only have like 1.2 kids or something or one kid. Um, if you have a kid and under the Soviet system, at least back then, your kid already had a job that he had to do or he or she had to do. So you had, if you had a kid and it was a woman, this this girl who, who became an adult woman, she already had something that she had to do. Maybe maybe it was a nurse. Maybe it was being a soldier. But she already had a job already picked out for her. Uh, seven, mass murder if Russians citizens or the Soviet citizens did not comply. They were killed. If they refused to work without incentives, they were jailed or killed. They were put in prison or killed if they refused to work hard. So what does that mean? You're, you're running the Soviet system and you're saying, man, we're falling. We're, 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 we're way behind on steel. Well, the guy who runs the steel mill is saying, well, you know, Soviet leader, they're just not working hard enough. Well, why? Just make them work hard. So you're sitting there, you know, in the steel mill. You know that when you get off of work, all you're going to have is a bag of potatoes, maybe 10 pounds of meat and uh, some oil for your for the fuel in your in your house, because it gets cold in Russia and all those Eastern European cities and countries it gets cold. So you have no desire to do better. So you go to work, you pound on the steel, you push the steel through through the hot, through the heat and, and the fire. And you go home every day and you know you're not going to get anything different than the last week. Okay. So when people refuse to work hard, they're just put in jail. Why do I need to work hard if I'm never going to benefit from my hard work other than to get some bread, 10 pounds of meat, and to make sure that my, my, my house has heat? See, that's almost like being a slave. Number eight, utopianism. And that's always been a failed social experiment when, when people have tried to control people's actions. And that's kind of like what's happening now with this COVID-19 thing, you know, shutting down the schools, telling business owners they can't open their business because of some, you know, virus 
that may be nothing more than a common cold for 99% of the population. Okay, so when you hear the word utopianism, you'll hear this phrase, humankind. That's another type of communist phrase. So when you, I hear these commercials all the time, and I can pick it out easily because, like I said, my mind is wired uh, to pick up these type of communist type uh, mindset and uh, you know and, and, and logic and philosophy. So I will hear commercials that will say, you know, do it, do it for the humankind. And for the average person, they feel, oh, you know, oh, it makes me feel so good to hear that. It's for the humankind. But what they're doing is basically saying, we don't want you to, to excel in your own endeavors. We don't want you to excel to pursue your own happiness. We want you to stay right inside this little freaking box. Number nine, under communism, a factory worker earns the same as a neurosurgeon. Okay, a, there's a stark difference in education, skills, and duties for the same money. So that you know, talented, uh, educated people did not make more money because it would anger the ordinary worker. That was the mindset of communism. So if you are an ordinary person in, 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 in under the communist system and you saw that you were li living like a 400 square foot shack and all of a sudden you saw this other guy living in this uh, 3,000 square foot, you know, mansion, you know, you would be upset about that. So communists didn't want there to be any tension between the two people looking at the assets and, and the lifestyle that each had. So in, in the communist system, you could be a factory worker and the other person could be a neurosurgeon and you guys are making the same money. And that's what Cuba is like. And that's what some people want an America to, to be like. They want Americans to have this average income. And they'll say, well, you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll make sure you have, uh, you know, health care. We'll make sure that you have, uh, you know, lights. But we don't want there to be a big disparity in wealth. We don't want one person to say, one woman to go out there and make a million dollars when the other person either doesn't want to make a million or the, um, you know, or cannot make, you know, a couple of million. So I, I see the similarity and you can see it in the news and you can see it with people that are talking about uh, unequal wealth distribution. Um, and, th and there are some people who despise people here in America and probably in other parts of the world uh, who make a lot more because of their skill, uh, talent, and, and, and their education. And finally, number 10, communism is based on tyranny. Now, a lot of people here in the States like to use that word and they use it incorrectly, but let me tell you what tyranny is. Tyranny is defined as using fear and terror to control the crowd. Uh, does that sound familiar to the current coronavirus scare and, and fear and panic uh, spread by the media and, and some politicians. So tyranny, again, spreading fear and terror to control the crowd. And that's, a, see, and that's the reason why I wanted to do this podcast episode about economics, because this is the best time to ever do it, because there are, there are so many examples of what socialism and communism is like 
and how capitalism has been temporarily uh, uh, damaged by this coronavirus thing. Again, I am 99.9% certain that this corona thing is nothing more than a common cold. And, you know, if you look at the other extreme, you know, the flu. So I believe, you know, people who have passed away who are in their 70s and 80s, and if they have it, that they had a respiratory type issue, yeah, it was probably something related to a respiratory disease. But here in the States, 80,000 people died of the flu and they haven't cut off. And, and back then they didn't, they didn't close the country down. Just uh, since uh, October, November of 2019, 35,000 people have died of the flu. So something doesn't add up yet, folks. And just my take on it was that this coronavirus thing, COVID-19, was just a uh, an, an application to take down not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy and to get people used to social engineering. So speaking of social, let's move to socialism. Okay, now, socialism is another form of, uh, of, of communism, and it's uh, about being using working in this collective uh, system and where, where there's government control and the government control listeners is through taxation policies okay so socialism is a hybrid between communism and capitalism and it's driven based on tax policy so socialism is uh, tax the people earning the most like 70 to 80 percent to provide government benefits to those who are not as productive. Okay, so not as productive meaning they don't want to be productive or they can't be as productive because they don't have the skill, talent, and expertise. So the government says, if you're making like a million dollars, you don't need all that money. <laughs> you don't need all that money. So we're going to take, you know, 70%, 60, 70% of that money we're going to take $600,000 of that money and we're going to distribute or redistribute that money to other people who are not making as near as a million dollars. And again, some of the same negative impacts that occur under socialism also fall under communism. They say they, 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 you see those same events, the same mindset, the same repercussions under socialism as you see in communism. See, the thing about socialism, especially here in America, you know, public education is available to everyone, but not everyone capitalizes on using the education to prosper. Now, as a black American, I identify myself as black American, um, you know, of course, eventually uh, back, you know, 200, 300 years ago, I'm not sure, Somebody in my family came from Africa, um, but I typically call myself a black American. The word African-American could be also used, but I have no uh, cultural ties to Africa, even though I've been to Africa before. One of the 30 places I've been to uh, I have no problems with the phrase African-American. But since I'm not culturally African based on how uh, someone growing up who was born and raised in Africa have you know lived culturally I, I just use the word black of black American but I'm not offended by African American either so back in the 70s for for black America African Americans there was this thing called the affirmative action uh, 
and it, and, a, and it started happening like the late 60s, early 70s. I was probably like eight, seven, eight years old when it when that happened. And that was a good thing. So affirmative action, in my opinion, was a good thing. But what happened, the people who been who 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 applied and were part of the affirmative action, they didn't maximize on it. Uh, affirmative action here in the in the states primarily meant that if you were black, you could apply for a government job, meaning city job, state job, you know, county job or federal job. And that is the that is the main reason why a lot of people left the South and they came to California because they could get a good city, county, state or federal job because of affirmative action basically said that you need to start hiring black people. And again, I believe that was a good thing because I'm not going to lie. I knew people growing up in my neighborhood, black males who were jobless because, uh, you know, a lot of white employers, a lot of white small business owners did not hire them. Now, I got to add something to that because I hear this all the time. And I just want I'm not trying to I'm not trying to defend, you know, white people on this show. But I want to say this. If I'm a white employer, especially back then, it may be even true now. I'm going to give you some scenarios. If I'm a white business owner and I have a choice of hiring my cousin, my friend who is also white, somebody I went to school with, the co- at, you know, like a university, a college, one of my frat brothers, one of my alumnus, you know, alumni members. And I have this this guy who might be black, who might be Hispanic, who might be Asian. If I have a choice and no one's forcing me to hire somebody different, I'm going to probably hire my, my, my best friend. I'm going to hire my cousin who needs a job. I'm going to hire uh, someone who's referred to me who needs a job. And that's how most of the reasons why people didn't get hired. It primarily wasn't because uh, white employers did not want to hire black people or Mexican people or Arab people or uh, Asian people. It was, you know, they already had someone they could hire and they did it. So affirmative action uh, caused a lot of uh, quotas to be introduced into the employment situation. And again, I agree with that because, you know, the history of black people in America is is sad. I mean, you know, black people in America is probably one of the few races that were uh, pulled from their country and brought the, to a, another country without any type of um, uh, infrastructure, no wealth, you know, no something to fall back on. And, and and the way things were here in America, it was difficult to save money. It was difficult to own anything to, to create assets. Now, some blacks did. You know, you heard of the story, the St. Louis phenomena where there were blacks uh, back in the 30s and 40s that actually had something called Black Wall Street. And there are a few examples where blacks did push through the economic uh, barriers and economic disparities and economic, uh, you know, racism to succeed. But those were few cases. Uh, So most blacks didn't have the assets and didn't have the wealth, didn't have the infrastructure, didn't have the network. So I I do believe that affirmative action uh, was a good thing. What I what I find what I find that was sad about it is that those that were in you know positions of employment 
did not perhaps save money, for, perhaps did not start a legacy of, uh, of, of wealth, did not you know, buy real estate. But that's kind of like what happened. I mean, I, I, I'm in my 50s, so I've seen this. It's not like I'm making this up. So if you're 25 and you're, you're 30 years old and you're listening to this, you go, oh, no, I, I, that cannot be true. That Negro's lying. No, 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 no. I'm almost 60 years old. Okay, so I've seen what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, and I've been on welfare as a teenager. You know, father was a drug dealer. Mother was a drug addict. My father gave the drugs to my mother. So I was on welfare between the ages of 13 and 50. And I saw how uh, I saw how politicians, they, they said to themselves, hey, you know what? We need some more voters. I'm talking about Democrats. OK, and I'm going to talk about the parties, you know, toward the end. But it was mainly Democrats. And they said, you know what? We need some voters to uh, to vote for us. So why don't we give people stuff to, to help their lives be better? And in return, we'll get them to vote for us. And that's how it started. Uh, blacks typically did not have a, 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 a party that they liked. And, but if they but if they did have uh, something that they liked, they preferred the Republican Party only because uh, the Republican Party was was uh, it's a long story. I don't want to get into detail with it because that would take me another 20 minutes to explain. Like my my grandfather was a, a Republican, even though he couldn't vote until 1965, 67. Um, and, and, and my father was also a Republican, but Republican back then met something different. I don't have time to go into it, but that's what happened to blacks as they were uh, struggling and, you know, and people didn't have access to jobs. Uh, so the Democrat Party said, we'll feed you. We'll give you Section 8 housing. We'll make sure that you have a place to stay. So blacks said, hmm, I like this. And that's how blacks began voting for Democrats, because blacks didn't really have a strong political affiliation. Uh, up until like the 60s. So I want to talk about something that's pretty interesting. Okay. Uh, speaking of civil rights and, and how economics is part of, of uh, I said, I remember I said economics is psychological, it's emotional, it's financial, and it's, and it's also political. Now there's a psychological angle to uh, economics. And I'm going to talk about this. Okay. Let's talk about some of the crazy socialist constructs holding black, holding back black America uh, psychologically. Like I said, economics is financial. It's uh, psycho psychological. It's emotional and it's political. So this phrase called Uncle Tom, I have always wanted to talk about this. I've never had the opportunity uh, to do it. I've always wanted to talk about this, this, this name, Uncle Tom. Okay, the name Uncle Tom, it's, it, it comes from a fictional story from the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was based on the real life story of this guy named Josiah Henson. That's J-O-S-I-A-H, Henson, H-E-N-S-O-N. And it was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she was an abolitionist. And for my international listeners an abolitionist is someone who was trying to you know f free slaves and uh, get them free and, and not let, have them be uh, slaves of white slave masters 
uh, in the South. So white American socialists have ingrained this moniker or attack phrase. And they would call me, even to this day, they would say, Rick, you are an Uncle Tom. To verbally insult me, to, to verbally insult black Americans like myself, who, did, who do not buy into the socialist propaganda that black Americans cannot succeed unless the government opens the door. So socialists have painted a picture that Uncle Toms of the USA have self-hate for themselves and uh, they hate other uh, black people. Uncle Tom is used to characterize particularly um, black Republicans as sellouts to the white man. So remember, we're talking about this phrase called Uncle Tom. So let's take a this. Let's talk about who Josiah Henson, uh, a real life person, who who he who he was, and how he is referred to as an Uncle Tom in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. Okay, so uh, abolitionist Harriet Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was very offended by the passage of a Democrat bill in 1850. See, people think the Democrats are the ones that are helping black people. Historically, they've been the ones that have wanted to keep black people back. They are the ones that own the slaves here in America. So it was a Democrat bill in 1850, in the year 1850, requiring Northerners who were protecting blacks uh, while uh, moving through the Underground Railroad. And that was a network of routes to get uh, enslaved blacks to the northern part of the U.S., like New York, like Philadelphia, Maine, Boston, those kind of cities. All cities north of Virginia were considered free states. And all the states, including Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, some parts of Florida, the Carolinas, were considered slave states. So here's the meat of the Uncle Tom character. Uncle Tom refused, and in, in, from the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom refused to tell white slave masters where two slave women were hiding. And these slave women were sexually abused by their white slave masters. So the real-life Josiah Henson, again, the fictional character in, in, the, in Uncle Tom, in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, was beaten to death because he did not reveal the hidden location of the two black women who were who were raped and you know sexually abused so so many black americans do not know the true story of josiah henson mainly because movie producers can make more money portraying uh henson as a sellout as a damn lie instead of telling the true story so movie producers say we're not going to tell the true story of josiah henson because ah, we can't make any money with that. So let's create this narrative that Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom, was a sellout to the blacks. See, movie producers made more money showing black Americans dancing in shows, uh, showing Uncle Tom self-hate, and uh, black slaves telling white masters what they needed, what they wanted to hear. You may have heard of this, these two phrases, ass kisser, and bootlicking. Those are two phrase, uh, you know, uh, uh, attached to blacks who would uh, just do whatever their white masters wanted. Okay, so ass kisser, you know, and, and bootlicker. <laughs> Seriously, th this is this is how things work. 
So these movies, these movie producers tried hard to suppress that many black Americans, including my, my grandfather, who was a ward a World War II veteran, fought in Germany. Th these movie producers tried their damnness to show that many black Americans uh, were historic or his heroic uh, figures back then. So this info, I want to tell you where the info was gathered so you can, you can look, read it yourself. I don't want people to take my word for granted, but this info was gathered from a 2008 uh, national public radio, NPR. Everybody knows who NPR is. Uh, an interview with Professor Patricia um, Turner, and she's a folklorist and professor of African American studies at the University of California, Davis, near Sacramento. Again, I wanted to include uh, this piece to show that the wide range of there's a wide range of economics in Uncle Tom. The negative impacts of black Americans are financial, psychological, emotional and political. And I really wanted to stress for this particular Uncle Tom thing. This Uncle Tom thing has kept so many blacks, you know, in this non-productive or uh, this 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 less than productive uh, state of mind for years. So if, if black Americans try to succeed and, they, and they're doing it through education, they're studying math, they're doing they're studying science, they're studying, you know, you know, whatever. And they're, and they're successful at it, like being a doctor. You know, others will look at them and say, oh, man, you're just an Uncle Tom. If you have a different belief system than the majority of, of blacks in the United States. So let's discuss again. This is economics. We're talking about the psychological the, the emotional part of economics uh, under socialism. So let's discuss the slur redneck. Okay, some people use that slur. Every, pretty much everyone knows whether knows that slur if you if you live in the U.S. If you're international, um, the slur the, the the phrase redneck. It's like like one word, like a compound word, redneck. And this is from Slate.com article, December 2019. Now, I already knew what the, the phrase red or the word redneck meant as a teenager growing up, you know, in, the, in Florida. The term was taught in the history books. Unfortunately, it's not taught in the history books today and people still use it wrong. So long story short, the term or slur for the misinformed goes back to the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia, in which 10,000 to 20,000 coal miners were trying to unionize and they clashed with the company bodyguards and the West Virginia National Guard. The 10,000 to 20,000 coal miners wore red bandanas around their necks, which is where the term rednecks originated. Redneck today is used to describe white Americans who may be poorly educated and live in rural settings working maybe on their farms or working with their hands. And uh, so a lot of times when people use that phrase and white people use that phrase incorrectly too. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's that just black people use that phrase incorrectly. White people use that phrase incorrectly because they don't know that redneck represented these 10 to 20,000 coal miners who were trying to uh, preserve their rights. Uh, and so how do they, how they, um, identified themselves to the public, they wore red bandanas. So please, if, now that you know, please don't use these two phrases incorrectly. 
don't call a, a, a black person who is trying to, to succeed using his talent, skill, expertise, and experience, uh, Uncle Tom, because you're using it incorrectly and you look stupid using it. So please don't do it. P- look up, read it for yourself what an Uncle Tom is. And if you're calling somebody a redneck, whether you be black, Hispanic, white, you're using it incorrectly. A redneck was someone, again, who was trying to protect their rights uh, as a coal miner in uh, West Virginia. So the summary, you can see how Uncle Tom, Redneck, and, and other slurs that are out there have caused a division between the races unnecessarily. So let's move on to socialism. Now, some say uh, U.S. Social Security is socialism. People say to me sometimes, well, well, Rick, Social Security is like socialism. No, it's not. You know, socialist, uh, Social Security, it's, it's close to an insurance policy paid to or paid into by Americans who have worked a number of years and can, and can access benefits. And the benefits start around 62 or 67 years old or later. So Social Security, I'm, I, I say to myself, they probably shouldn't have started it. Because when you tell people you don't have to produce that much because 30, 40 years down the line, we're going to give you a check. So people don't produce as hard. They don't put too much effort. But it started like in 1902 or 1917, something like that in in the United States. So social security benefits is not socialism. It's like a social insurance policy. Now, it is socialism if If you just got to the country and all of a sudden they say, oh, we're going to give you Social Security benefits. Now that right there, I kind of have a problem with, but not a big problem. I just want to uh, provide a distinction between the two. So the USA does have a social uh, uh, net system. We do have a social system that provides like a, a social net for people through no fault of their own if they have a disability or if they have birth defects or if they have mental or physical impairments where the federal government says we will give you money to live on. Now you won't be able to live in Beverly Hills or the Hamptons in New York, but we'll give you money so that you can probably get get an apartment or if it's two people with an impairment, maybe you can get a house that's like cheaper than most people can get. And uh, this is 100% acceptable to me, uh, where people cannot provide for themselves. So the, the United States does have a social network, but you know, but the U.S. is primarily a country that says, if you work hard, you will achieve what you want to achieve. Socialists do not like it when people can provide for themselves. That scares the hell out of them. Oh no, you mean to say you can provide for yourself? You can You can design your own path for success You can pay your own bills. Oh, no, we don't like that. So how do people get perhaps to this place where they can't provide for themselves? Well, if they don't graduate from high school or college or technical school, okay, they're going to they're not going to be in a good shape. If you never acquired some education uh, to to put you in a situation where, you know, you are uh, able to gain to get gainful employment, you can market your your skills for a, for a salary or an hourly wage. Uh, so uh, if you have had like a, a, a track record of criminal behavior, which means you're in jail, in jail, in jail, in jail, 
over 5, 10, 15 year period, then it's going to be tough to go out and get a job. Now, you can't start a business, okay? But it's going to be tough when the employer says you have 15 years of criminal activity and I don't think I can hire you. So that's the employer's choice here. Now, there are some programs where uh, uh, people with felonies can re-enter society. There's a programs for that. But a lot of times when there's like 5, 10, 15, 20 years of criminal behavior, some people get used to that. Like I mentioned, my dad was a drug dealer. You know, I don't think he had, I think he had one real job when he got out of the army and uh, he went straight into drug dealing. So, and he died in 1996. So teen pregnancy is another one, uh, which is not a total showstopper, but it may hold some women back in the short term. I know a lot of women who had kids in their teenage years who have gone on to have very successful careers. I'm just trying to identify some of the, the factors that may uh, cause people to have problems. So let's talk about capitalism finally. Okay, capitalism, when you hear the word capitalism, think profit. The profit that's generated from moving products, goods, and services from a manufacturer to a consumer. And uh, the, the, the godfather of capitalism is, was this guy named Adam Smith. He was the first theorist, or what we call the father of capitalism. He was born in 1723, and he died in 1790. Again, Adam Smith. And capitalism's capitalism's, um, main trait, if you think of like one phrase that you can attribute to capitalism, it's supply and demand, okay? Or the competition for scarce resources. So Adam Smith, birthplace, Kirkcaldy, Scotland. So the guy was a, a, you know, a a Scottish guy. He went to the University of Glasgow at at age 13. So the guy was pretty sharp. I'm not sure what the requirements were to go to college in in Scotland, but he was he was 13 years old when he went to the University of Glasgow and he studied morals of philosophy. And uh, that's kind of like how I started my company. You know, when you think, when you study what, how people think and you study what type of behavior that people have, you learn some things from that. Um, so Smith wrote the book called Wealth of Nations in 1776. Adam Smith believed in what we call the free markets. His concept was something called the invisible hand, meaning by every, you know, meaning by every man or woman looking out for themselves, this attitude creates the best economic outcome for all. So the invisible hand, what that means is, let's say you say to yourself, you know what, there's a job out there for $10 an hour, but I think I can find a job based on what I know, my education, my experience, my talent, my skill, my expertise. I think I can get a job at $25 an hour, okay? So in order for you to get a job at $25 an hour, you can't just walk into a company and say, I want to make $25 an hour. And that's what's happening in some parts of the U.S. where these cities have created this thing called the minimum wage standard. That's not the right thing. That's not the right way to do it. A person should be able to get the job that they have and earn the money that they earn based upon what is demanded from 
their skill, talent, and expertise. So the invisible hand, again, meant that every person could look out for themselves, and this creates the best economic outcome for all. And I can, I can probably talk an hour just about that one subject. So by a, a person selling products um, that meets the needs of a buyer, the seller will enjoy the financial rewards of moving that product from the manufacturer to the consumer. Uh, producing products people want, things like iPhones, flat screen TVs, uh, vacations, cars, um, already said vacations, travel. And see, and by producing cars, phones, homes, vacations, medical advancements, uh, cures for the COVID virus, cures for cancer, AIDS, this requires hiring people so employees can buy cars, phones, vacations, and have health insurance. You know, the United States is a uh, private sector health insurance uh, country, and the best health insurance a person can buy or get is the health insurance through an employer. Now, some people have a problem getting health insurance because they can't find a job that pays them enough money. But a lot of times they can't find the job that pays them enough money because they didn't study anything in college or they didn't go to, they didn't finish high school. They didn't study anything with technology. They didn't study something in college that was marketable so that they can find a job that provides great health insurance because there are many jobs available in the U.S. that will pay sometimes the entire health care costs. But if a person went to school and they only graduate, they only finished the eighth grade or they, they uh, graduated high school with a D plus in America, we have an A through F system. The E is not counted. So if you got F's, you don't, you're not going to graduate. But if you happen to sneak through with a D plus or C minus, throughout your entire uh, 12 years of school, you'll probably get a high school diploma, something that says you've finished high school. Now, if you were not prepared with math and with science and with English and with other types of classes like philosophy to qualify to take classes or enter a technology program where you can earn a earn salary of uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars an hour, then you're going to be behind the eight ball. It's going to be hard to uh, put yourself in position to maximize uh, your capitalistic experience. So why is capitalism hated by some in the USA? Well, again, can't or don't want to participate. There are some people that say, I don't want to do anything, but I want money. And then there are some, like I mentioned, that can't participate because they don't have the skill. How about this one? They're jealous of people who had a head start. Okay, so if you happen to come from a family that, you know, when you were born, they were worth $5 million, that's a head start. Somebody is going to be rich. There are people all throughout the world who have money. Do I wish I was one of them? Yeah. You know, can I be one of them? Yes. In a capitalist, a capitalistic system, I can. So I can't be angry with somebody who became rich because, or who who is rich because their parents were rich. I'll give you a, an example of someone who started with nothing and ended up with a ton of money. 
And that, that was Steve Jobs, the guy who uh, started Apple. And I remember I had an Apple Mac computer in the late, late 80s. And Steve Jobs did not, he didn't have a college education. I think he started college, but he didn't finish. But what he discovered was that he could make this uh, operating system and, you know, put a, a computer together and, you know, people would like it. Now, people didn't want, not everybody wanted a computer back in the mid 80s, in the late 80s, but he stuck with it. And for some people may not even know this, I think it was like the late 90s or maybe, no, no, it was like the middle 2000s. Steve Jobs was fired by his own company. The board of directors said, Steve, you're holding us back. We have voted to remove you as the CEO of Apple. Okay, so that was, I think it was in either 1995 or middle 2000. So Steve Jobs began working on something else. He began working on something something similar that created the iPhone. So Apple was tumbling and they were losing money and they were almost out of existence. So one of the board members said, Steve, please come back. Please help us. Steve was known to be a a narcissist. He was known to be a person hard to work with and hard to work for, but he was driven. He was driven to be successful. So when um, they brought him back, he said, hey, give me some time. Let's get some things together. And that's when the iPhone was was uh, launched and some other things like the the iPad. So when so when Steve left, it wasn't I anything it wasn't iPad. It was an iPhone. When he came back, that's when the iPad came out and that's when the, the iPhone came out and the rest is history. My son works at Apple. And uh, and I, I'm happy because I, I am a, a total Mac lover, an iPhone uh, Mac lover. And uh, I've always loved that company because of how Steve Jobs started it. A guy who had nothing. And I believe his background is like either Middle Eastern or like uh, Southern Europe. I believe he's either Armenian or he's like a, a Middle Easterner. Uh, and oh, I think he's um, what is Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs is a ah, I can't think of it. You guys can look it up, but he is not uh, from like an American, you know, like a, a, a Anglo uh, background, Anglo DNA. He's from a, he's from another culture. But I applaud him to death. He did it. Another reason why people hate capital, capitalism, uh, they're naturally envious of human and human behavior. Some people are just envious of other people. Uh, some people are, hate capitalism because they're not willing to put in the sweat equity. What is sweat equity for my international listeners? Sweat equity is doing something for a long time and not getting the money right away. And then maybe six months later, a year later, two years later, the money is rolling in. Uh, some people hate capitalism because they do not want uh, delayed gratification. They want to get it now. They want to do something today and get the, get a lot of money tomorrow. And uh, another reason why people hate capitalism, they have no long-term positive outlook. Now, why do people love capitalism? Well, they can find a niche and fill it. That's how I started my company. I saw that a lot of white-collar small business owners... 
didn't know how to, you know, have a, 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 a professional sales system. So I created one. Uh, some people like capitalism because they can design the best product and, or the best service. And they feel that the best product or best service is still not out there. So there are people looking for ways to improve what some people say are the best products out there. So some people are saying, no, no, no. The best product is still not out there. I, I have the idea. Some people like capitalism because they say, I can change what I'm doing now and do something different. Some people say, I'm 50 and I still can find a way to make a lot of money. Some people say, I'm 20. Nobody will listen to me, but I have a great idea. And again, that's the Steve Jobs story. That's the Bill Gates story. Another person who didn't graduate from college. That's the, uh, the, uh, the Mark Zuckerberg story, the Facebook king. People who are you, people who are using Instagram. That's uh, that's uh, you know Zuckerberg bought that from somebody. So what are the misconceptions about capitalism? Well, some people think that only rich people benefit. Again, there were all there will always be rich people. In order for people to have jobs, there must be someone richer to pay you. So people say, "Why well, I hate rich people," and I always tell them, "Well, do you have a job?" Yeah, how much do you make? 70,000? Well, guess what? In order for you to make 70,000 a year and all of your other friends to make 50, 70, 100,000, that business owner, that rich person must be making way more than than, than $70,000 or he or she could not afford to pay you. And I even did a study where I had to like shut somebody down who was trying to be a hater on capitalism. I said, "Look, There's a lot of people that talk about CEOs making too much money. And I said, okay. So I picked the company. I won't tell you the company's name. And I said, this company has 40,000 employees worldwide. And the average employee makes $100,000. So that company pays $4 billion in salaries every year. And the CEO makes $50 million. So I asked that person, are you upset that the CEO makes $50 million? Person said, yes, that CEO should not make $50 million. The CEO should make like five because the money should go to the employees who are doing the work. Some people don't know that the reason why the CEO is making $50 million is because the CEO is able to uh, move that company forward so they can be probably the market leader. See, the CEO making $50 million is responsible for the 40,000 employees to make $100,000. So I said, okay, so let's do the math. If the CEO making $50 million gave his or her money all to to each employee. So I did the calculation. If the CEO gave his or her $50 million to 40,000 employees... Each employee would make $1,250 extra per year or about $104 extra per month. So does it make sense to lose a competent, successful CEO that you're paying $50 million to and you get a scrub like a a doofus, a a stupid CEO at $5 million just so each employee can make $104 extra. You see what I'm saying? That's, see, that's what I'm saying. People don't understand economics. 
they don't understand it. So another capitalism feature is government can provide for public services. Okay, so anytime uh, capitalism is working, that means that's private sector. Capitalism is a private sector. That's Apple. That's Starbucks. That's uh, Disney. That's uh, you know um, Comcast. That's Universal Studios. That's uh, you know skiing. That's Carnival Cruise Lines. That's your um, you know you buy a Tesla car. You buy a Honda. Those are capitalistic enterprises. So what happens in capitalism? The revenue that companies make minus the, the expenses has something called a profit. And when that profit is taxed, all those profits pays for things like, like military, police, uh, EBT cards, like welfare cards, uh, Medi-Cal in California, Medicaid, fixing streets, air traffic control, uh, medical advancements, uh, this coronavirus thing, uh, money for universities. Um, you know, you know, it allows people to to buy iPhones, to buy laptops, to have carpet, to have air conditioning. To buy homes, so capitalism drives every single thing in this economy. We could not have what we have in America and in other countries that ha- that that participate in capitalism if it wasn't for private companies. See, when the government owns everything, like in socialism, you wouldn't you wouldn't have iPhone <laughs> because it wouldn't be anybody to invest their sweat equity and their investment to create a company like Apple. See, when capitalism fails, the country fails and then poverty strikes. And that's currently what happening is happening with this um, with this COVID uh, virus thing. So how can capitalism fail? When politicians want more money than the people politicians are supposed, are supposed to represent. Let me go into detail. The U.S. has three political parties, three major parties. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. So let's talk about uh, Democrats for a for, for a minute. Democrats have less power if the USA is booming. If the USA economy is booming, Democrats have less power. De- Democrats have less problems to solve when the economy in America is booming. And um, so when they have less power, they can't tax people and they can't pass legislation when the U.S. economy is booming. For Democrats to be popular and to have power, unfortunately, they will try their best to create problems. And again, that's what that's how I look at the COVID-19 thing, the, the coronavirus thing. This thing did not start on, on its own. And there's a lot of people happy on the Democrat side that the economy is having problems right now. I'm just being totally honest. You can take it for what it's worth. You can either like it or dislike it. But that is the truth when it comes to economics. And as you look at the three different parties. Before 1995, Democrats' strength were creating union jobs. Uh, Unions were huge prior to 1995. Uh, Democrats would call strikes at big companies to get employees higher wages. But after 1995, union membership began to drop because of technology and automation. Uh, plants that make cars were, they were, they were replacing employees with, with robots and technology, the technology we have today. The technology that I have making this recording is, is, a, is a capitalistic um, a project. So, so because of technology and automation, 
you know, which are capitalistic features, Democrats began losing membership. They began losing voters. So Democrats had to find other causes to appe- that would appeal to the people. So Dems chose LGBT, which is the gay rights movement, and they chose the illegal immigration groups. To be clear, the history of Democrats have been to use groups and causes to gain popularity politically and to gain power. See, Dems, just like I said earlier, Dems used blacks in the 70s. See, when you're old enough, you know enough. Now, am I saying it's illegal for what, what Democrats are doing? People are grown. They have to make their own decisions. But when you are old enough, you get to know enough. So I've seen this before as a teenager in the 70s and how Democrats uh, attracted black people uh, by giving them giving them things that would help them. And I, I'm not saying that it's it's bad for them to do it. You just have to understand what the game is. And I'm explaining what the economic game is when it comes to Democrats, Republicans and independents. Now, on the Republican side, Republicans have historically their their uh, platform has been promoting the private sector enterprises. It's no secret uh, expanding the gross domestic product, which means making sure that more and more and more things are, are produced here. More products are being made, more products are being sold. And that's one of the uh, things that Trump is doing with the tariffs. Okay, so that's no secret. That's been the Republican platform ever, forever. And Republicans have always been that way until like the late 18, I'm not 18, the late 1960s, early 70s. They did add a religious component. Now, Now, I'm not totally excited about them adding a religious component, but they did. And they added this component called the moral majority, which was mainly uh, something to um, uh, uh, fight against abortion. Okay, so when Democrats, again, selected blacks and they said, hey, you know, we wanted to be pro-female reproductive rights. Republicans said, aha, well, we'll we'll just add this uh, religious component. So both sides added components. And that's what I want to make clear. Both sides added components. So back to Republicans, if a company needs 10,000 workers and there is an abundance of workers for that job, the hourly salary will be lower than a job where where there's a shortage of labor. So in the case, a worker can choose to use his or her labor in a job with too many workers or not. So, you know, so if, the, if, if a person wants a, a, a good job and let's say there's a lot of people that want that same job and uh, and uh, and the comp- and, and the industry does not need that many people, then that person will not get the maximum hourly wage because there are too many people. On the other side of that, if a company needs 10,000 workers and there's a shortage of workers for that industry, the hourly salary will be higher. That's why nurses make more money than a factory worker. That's why an IT person makes more than an auto mechanic. So a shortage of labor also means the product or service is also in high demand, like the iPhone, the Starbucks, expensive coffee, uh, tech jobs. Like here in San Francisco, tech jobs start at at least $60 an hour because the number of people available to do tech work is very low. So if somebody wants to make a great income, start learning about technology. 
And you, you'll boost yourself from $20 an hour to at least $60 an hour, at least on the West Coast. Plus technology companies serve the world. I always tell people this. I went to Europe six months ago and uh, I had been there in the 80s before technology hit. So when I went to Europe, I saw like six people out of 10 using an iPhone. I saw virtually everybody using Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, some type of social media, you know, thing, YouTube. So that little section in San, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, about 30, 40 mile stretch from San Francisco to San Jose, they generate products and services for the world. So if you have Wi-Fi and you're, and you're in a cave in Africa with Wi-Fi, you can be on Instagram. You can use YouTube. So this is the power of technology and capitalism. So Democrats versus Republican. Okay, so let's talk about that. Since the Republican have since the Republicans have always claimed the free enterprise posture, by default, the Democrats have no choice but to choose a non-free enterprise political position. It's as simple as that. I hope I make myself clear. So just think about it. If, if you slice a pie in half, and one side says, you know what, we got this side of the pie. We've had this side of the pie since Adam Smith, since 1730. Officially, capitalism started in 1850. So we have this slice of the pie. We've had it for 170 years. So if Democrats want to be in the political game, they can't say, well, we want to, we want to, we want free enterprise too. That would be stupid. So what they have chosen is things that are not free enterprise. I hope people are, are, are adult enough to understand that. It's not that Democrats are bad and Republicans are better. It just means that Rep the Republicans chose the free, the free enterprise side back in 1850. It's now 2020. That's 170 years of dominating this particular issue, this particular uh, part of economics. So by default, the Democrats have no choice but to select things that are not about free enterprise if they want to make themselves uh, a viable you know, party or someone that they, they're trying to attract. Again, supply and demand. So if you go back 250 years and the Dems would have chosen the free enterprise angle, Dems would be supporting lower taxes, less regu re regulation, uh, pro-constitution stuff. And if Democrats 250 years ago would have chosen the free enterprise angle, I would vote for Democrats. Folks, it's that simple. I'm not trying to explain rocket science. I'm just trying to explain it's either it's, it's cause and effect. If you want to be relevant politically, you can either uh, try to be one of those who support free enterprise, but it's too many. There's no spot for you if you if you're if you want to be on the free enterprise system. Those spots have already been claimed. So the next choice is, well, what if I go? What if I support non-free enterprise uh, position? Oh, there's a spot. Okay, I'll do it, and I'll make money as a politician. So you got to understand, this is about the money. So I can tell people to vote not on whether a person has a D or an R next to their name, vote based on what you want for you and your family. If you want your kids or you, if you're single, to have a good job because you and your kids want a better life, 
then vote Republican. If you think you can have a good life by letting government control uh, who is successful or not, vote for Democrats. So, however, the track record uh, favors the Republican by 60 to 40 margin, in my opinion, just because the Republicans have been doing it since the year 1850, and they are the 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 the, the, the author of of capitalism, Adam Smith, 1730. Both Republicans and the Democrat politicians like power. I will tell you that they both like power. Politicians like power if people benefit from maximizing their own efforts. That's how Republicans... So Republicans say, I like to give people the opportunity to uh, make their own way. So I'll write legislations to have less government involvement and let people decide their own fate. Whether they crash or they're successful, you get to, to decide. Democrats like power if people benefit by government decisions. So you can look at the Democrat as the middleman uh, for services that come out for a cost. In other words, you can say, okay, I'm gonna vote for Democrats, but it's gonna cost me. You know, I might not be able to make $100,000. I may end up with 60, because it's gonna cost me Thirty to forty thousand dollars for uh, uh, the, the tax uh, taxes I have to pay to keep them in charge, but those taxes have to be paid by somebody. So I'm just I'm just telling you the Democrats are more of a middleman. So look at it like that. Don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you how to look at it. So as uh, myself, I'm a registered independent because I want the least government involvement as possible. I am a registered independent, have been that way for, for a while. Um, independents are more of the Boston Tea Party type, which means don't mess with us. Don't create these funky laws. Don't create COVID-19 stuff. Uh, we just want to be left the hell alone. And we want to decide our own faith. If we make a mistake, you know what? Let's just let the law settle it. <laughs> If we are, if we benefit, we want to say that it was because of our our free will. So I am a um, registered independent. Independents usually vote for the lesser of two evils, <laughs> which is I normally vote Republican. I've only voted for one Democrat back in 1998, um, excuse me, 88, and that was Jesse Jackson, who quickly left his independent thought and he started started following the Democrats. I love Jesse Jackson. He said, he had this, he said this statement, he goes, I am somebody. That's the reason why I liked him. He goes, I am somebody. And uh, he started that phrase actually in the seventies, but when he ran for president in 1988, I believe, yeah, uh, he had this phrase, I am somebody, but he, he quickly caved because you know what? He found out there's no money <laughs> for him. There was no money and telling people they can think for themselves. He quickly discovered that and he said, well, there's no money in telling people they can think for themselves and they can be somebody. So he was almost like talking Republican talk, but there was no money for him as a Democrat. So I just wanted to make that part clear. So finally, let's talk about Mexico, India, and Europe. So I've been to 30 countries. Like I said, I've spent... Uh, some time in those 30 countries. I always respect countries. I think I mentioned that at the beginning. So let's talk about Mexico. Okay, so Mexico's challenge 
is that it's next to the United Mexico's challenge is that it's located next to the most Mexico's challenge is that it's next to the most prosperous country in the world. I mean, I'm saying that as an American. I'm saying that based on what I see, based on what I've what I've seen. Okay, so Mexico is a poor country that has a lot of great, hardworking people. Okay, um, so again, the USA very prosperous. Mexico poor country. We're right next to each other. Mexico is to the south, so Mexico has all the ingredients. For a strong capitalist economy, but it has problems related to other issues that I'm not going to, you know, state on this podcast. Okay, so I've been to Mexico five times. I own a timeshare in Cabo San Lucas. I see what is going on in Mexico. People make an average of five to twelve dollars per day、uh, based on you know what what they do. At least in Cabo, what I saw in Cabo. In Mexico City, it's more of a capitalistic society because that's where all the industry, the universities, the hospitals. But when you leave Mexico City, the wages drop, and it's tough for people. It's very, very tough. I've seen some tough people. So, so I've seen what happens,、uh, and I know the reasons why people come across the border. I've seen it. I know people who are not here legally. So, but here's the deal, and again, I don't know how this is going to be solved, but I do understand the problem. For every undocumented family of four, the cost to U.S. and/or California taxpayers, let's say U.S. taxpayer, is about $150,000, and that's for medical benefits, food, housing, and to pay for that, it takes 20 people making $75 an hour. I'm sorry. It takes 20 people making $75,000 a year, taxed at 10%, to pay for one family of four. So those are the numbers with with undocumented people coming from Mexico or coming from any country, you know, a lot from Central America or coming from any country in the world. Because a lot of people, you know, try to come through the border. They're not just from Mexico, but I'm I'm using Mexico as that's the that's the country. That that borders the U.S. So do do people crossing the border, specifically、uh, Mexicans and people from Central do, Central America, contribute? Yes, but it's no, it's not nearly anywhere close to、um, you know twenty people making seventy five thousand dollars a year taxed at ten percent. So, not sure how they're going to solve that, but yeah, I just want to talk about that. India. Lots of people, 1.35 billion people. 1.35 billion people live in the landmass that's about 70% the size of the USA. That's a lot of people in a country that's 70% the size of the USA. So India has four times as many people as the USA in a country only 70% the size of the USA. Uh, most speak English. I would say 70% of the of Indian people、uh, speak English. So you know, there's some that speak poor English.、Uh, many that speak perfect English.、Uh, the people are industrious. 
I remember this, Indira Gandhi, 1982. She was the uh, prime minister of India. I, I was in the military. And I remember her coming on TV and she said, I am so tired of people making fun of the Indian people. So she signed a mandate that every Indian person was gonna be good in math, good in science, and good in English. So from 1982, for the next 20, 25 years, India made their residents extremely intelligent when it came to math, science, English, and information technology. So if you go to San Jose, California, or anywhere in Silicon Valley, you will see thousands of Indians in Silicon Valley, thousands. And that's because they study computer science. They study math. If you look at who wins the English spelling bees, the top three candidates, two of the top three candidates are going to be people from India. They know the English language and the words better than, than most uh, American citizens. So that's something that, um, that that's to their benefit. India has a homogenous society. Uh, they're better equipped to rally their nation when everyone needs to pull together because they speak the same language. They have similar customs. They have some slight differences between the different Indian um, sort of tribes. But all in all, they're just they're one country with with Hindi, uh, Punjabi language and Sanskrit. Uh, Southern Europe. Let's talk about that. I was there just six months ago and I was there in 1983. Uh, the economy was booming in 1983. Lots of changes have happened uh, since the EU has become, has been a part of, of, uh, of, the, of Europe since 1995. It is not the same Europe I saw in 1983. Uh, socialism, and that's, that's, that, that's the EU brand. Um, you know, it, it has, to my opinion, it has hurt Europe. Uh, I remember being in Germany. Uh, Germany was a very, very sophisticated country, uh, high tech, smart people, bright people. Italy, the same thing. Spain, I was in Barcelona twice. I was in there in 1983. Then I was there in 1984. Just went back. Barcelona has not taken a big hit. Barcelona looks like, I would say, the uh, regular U United States city. I, I could live in Barcelona. I loved it. It felt like I was in any U.S. city. Um, but I went to some of the other places in Europe. Some of the buildings were not painted. Uh, some of the things look run down compared to how they looked in uh, 1983 and 1984. So, listeners, I just wanted to give you guys a, a little input about economics. And again, I hope I didn't piss anybody off. And again, uh, you know, if, if you're a U.S. citizen, hey, you get to pick what you want. But I tell you what, put your money on free enterprise. If you have any ambition, if you have any uh, goals to be very successful, if you want to strive and do your own thing, you know, put your money on the capitalistic model. I hope and I pray to God this country never becomes uh, a socialist country. Or, or a communist country. I just pray to God. And if it happens, I hope I'm dead. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so anyway, thanks for listening to this podcast episode. So if you are a white collar small business owner and this podcast episode addresses a concern or situation that you're going through right now, please do not hesitate to call me at 
321-3212 or internationally using WhatsApp at country code 1-415-515-6760 to see if 321-BizDev LLC can help you find a winning solution. We recommend small business owners looking for solutions. Visit our website at 321bizdev.com slash services to complete a questionnaire to begin the consultative process. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, I've been waiting for years to do a podcast like this, and it was because of this COVID-19 coronavirus crap that I was prompted to do this podcast. So again, if you are an American citizen, or if you are a citizen of the world, and you have the ambition to make your life better for tomorrow than it is today, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Make it a great free enterprise day. Thanks for listening.